This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core claims of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And my goodness, I just had the most deep, wonderful, God-filled, I don't even know what to say, conversation with Tim Challies. So many of you know Tim Challies from Challies.com. He reviews a lot of books. He sort of operates in the discernment space, but not like discernment blogger space where there's just heresy hunter and hunting and looking for everything to be wrong. He's actually just such a trusted source. He has been for me and many others as he does lots and lots of book reviews on his blog. And some of you may remember a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago now, uh, his son Nick uh, died very suddenly. And I remember seeing those posts and praying for his family, and he's written a book called Seasons of Sorrow, where he reflects on the full year from the time that it happened until a year later, and it's it's orchestrated in fall, winter, spring, and summer. And it's such a tremendous resource for Christians and for parents who have walked through something similar, and it's so encouraging and edifying. I just recommend that book to everybody. But it was really fun to have Tim on because not only did we go deep into that stuff, but Tim also gave us his his recommendations of three books that he would love to see every church bookstore put in their resource catalog, and then four books that he wishes every church would remove from their catalog. So we begin with that, and some of them may not surprise you, but we kind of talked about some of these books that have had a real impact on the church, but maybe a negative impact, and why we think the church was vulnerable to those messages at the time. So just a really rich, jam-packed conversation. Very excited for you to hear this from Tim Challies. Well, Tim, I am so overjoyed to have you on the podcast. You have been one of my longtime guests that I've just really, really wanted to have on. So I was so thrilled when I was able to connect with you and invite you on and that you accepted. And there are so many things that I want to talk through today. Of course, I followed your work for years and years. I've gleaned a lot of help through your book reviews, which is a large part of your ministry online. And then more recently, following the the story of you losing your son and then ultimately writing this book, Seasons of Sorrow, which, by the way, happened right on the heels of me walking with my sister through the death of her youngest child, her only son. So it was very raw for me when I saw your post about it, and I was 
praying for your family and relating with that quite deeply. And I know that as our family walked through that, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God in a strange and counterintuitive way was bigger and more evident to me than it ever was before. And I saw similar themes from you in your book, Seasons of Sorrow. So we're going to talk about that. But I would love for you, for anybody listening or watching who is not familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and the main kind of thrust of your ministry. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me here. It's been uh, it's been a long time coming, but really looking forward to our conversation. And uh, yeah, so I'm based out of the Toronto area in Canada. I've been living here my whole life. My family has since moved to the States, but I've stayed strong and stayed in Canada. <laughs> I've been married to Aileen for 25 years, and actually we're recording this on the date of our 25th anniversary. Congratulations. And, yeah, yeah, thanks. And um, we, the Lord's blessed us with three children, uh, one of whom you mentioned, um, Nick, has passed away, and then two daughters as well. And uh, yeah, for many years now, 20 odd years, I've been blogging, talking about um, my life, talking about the Christian life, sharing book reviews. And um, yeah, just it's been a it's been a long run. I've been enjoying uh, enjoying it all along. So really grateful for the opportunity to talk about some of these things with you. Well, God has certainly used your ministry in a very mighty way. In fact, I would say that you're probably one of the go-to sources when a new book comes out that's kind of taking the church at large. I, you know, me and many others be like, well, what does Tim Challey say? Let's just go see what he has to say about it. And it's always so helpful. And I think especially years ago when I was trying to discern through the whole phenomenon surrounding the shack and then the movie that came out for the shack, your work was hugely helpful in discerning through that. So I wonder, you know, it would be nice to start, I think, with just the topic of discernment. You know, there is so much out there online. There are quote-unquote discernment bloggers that just hate absolutely everything that's ever come out and think everybody's a heretic. And then on the other side of things, you have people who have no discernment at all and think that any kind of criticism is unchristian and ungodly. How do you hit the bullseye? And maybe maybe we could start by saying, what is biblical discernment? What is our call as Christians to discern the material we take in, whether it's a book or a movie or something, especially if it's marketed as a Christian resource? How do you approach that? So discernment is simply the, the process, if you will, of, of distinguishing truth from error and right from wrong. And as Christians, we can't be naive and assume that everything that's presented to us is truthful not even everything that comes out of quote unquote Christian sources, Christian publishers can bring us some really awful books and books that say things that are absolutely wrong and contrary to scripture. So our, our task as Christians is to constantly be assessing what comes our way and to be distinguishing from what is right and what is wrong. And of course, God's given us his word as the, the standard that we hold everything to. And uh, years ago now, I, was, I wrote a review of, um, it might've been The Shack, um, and somebody sent me an email, just a scathing email, and one of, his, um, one, of, one of his insults to me was like, I can almost picture you with this book in one hand and your Bible in the other hand. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I did. That's, and that's yeah. exactly what we're called Thank to do. You. That's, that's the sermon <laughs> right there. Yeah. So, but you're right. There are some people who go overboard and they, um, you know, come discernment ministries, discernment blogs, discernment YouTubers, et cetera. 
And I think they don't really exercise good discernment in the sense they're just after what's wrong, really just lambasting everything and Mm -hmm. have learned how to beat the algorithm and monetize grouchiness or being a curmudgeon. On the other side, we have people who are just, they'll, they'll accept anything and they discern nothing. So yeah, we need to be finding that middle ground, I think, where we're truly assessing things, um, but also acknowledging good and truth and beauty where it, where it is. That's good. How do you decide which books you're going to review um, or what to write about? Is it just sort of, it comes to you day by day or depending on what comes down your newsfeed or how do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, I get almost all the books. Uh, They show up at my door. And so Mm -hmm. that gives me the ability to look at them and uh, see what's new. I do try and keep an eye on some of the big books out there. And, um, you know, if if a million people are reading a book, that's probably something I want to take a look at. That said, I don't think we've had a a lot of those books lately. There was a time maybe 10 years ago, even Mm -hmm. five years ago, where there are a lot of really big, significant books coming out. I just don't think we've had that over the last little while. And I've appreciated that because it allows me to focus more on the good books. I, I I want to primarily be resourcing people with, here's a good book on this subject. Here's mm. a good book on that subject. That's more meaningful to me than here's a book to avoid and here's why. Right. That's good. Well, before we went on the air, I threw out an idea to you and you're, you were a great sport about it. You're, we're going to kind of play this game of if Tim Challies could put three books into every church bookstore what would they be? And if Tim Challies could take away three books from every church bookstore, what would they be? And actually, you had four for that one. So we'll have four yeah. on the takeaway category. But let's start with the the ones you would add. And you mentioned the holiness of God. Talk about the holiness of God. Yeah. So years ago, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And it was in its time, I think, groundbreaking. There's since been quite a number of books on God's holiness, but his was at least the first in a generation. And I think what Sproul did so well was present God as he reveals himself in scripture, really starting with a passage like Isaiah 6 and working forward from there and just showing God in that transcendent, beautiful holiness. Our our um, temptation as sinful people is always to make God more like us and less like he Mm. truly is to make him a God that's um, very comfortable for us to engage with or interact with. Uh, But Sproul showed God as, as he truly is a God who is to be feared, a God who Mm. uh, is to be loved as he truly is. And so I think that's a book any Christian could read, any Christian could benefit from. And it's really stood the test of time, though there have been other books on God's holiness I don't think any of them have attained the same heights as Sproul's. Great. So Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I think, too, pondering the holiness of God, it counters heresy of all kind, because you think of really, you know, in progressive Christianity, which is sort of what I study and write about, it's a, I mean, it's a lack of the fear of God. It's a lack of recognizing His holiness. One of the number one things you'll hear is, well, I could never worship a God who, and then you say something that you wouldn't want to do, but we're we're not like God. God is holy and we are not. So I think that's a great thing for our current cultural moment to counter some of that stuff. And then the second one you mentioned was uh, Ashamed of the Gospel by MacArthur. Talk about that one. Yeah, well, going back to what you just said, I think it's so important. The initial words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Mm-hmm. Our initial starting point for most of our theology is me, in the mm-hmm. beginning, me. Um, but if we begin with God and understand ourselves in relationship to him, yeah, we're going to counter a lot of progressive Christianity, a lot of heresy there. Um, 
yeah, Ashamed of the Gospel. So I'm sort of cheating here. These are books that were especially important to me that I therefore recommend to others. But mm-hmm. um, there was a time in my life when I was in churches that maybe, maybe weren't progressive, but were very much part of that church growth movement. And they had really just kind of packaged up Christianity and boxed it up and were delivering it to local churches and saying, if you take our version of the Christian faith and deliver it to your people, maybe even preach our sermons, we can guarantee, literally guarantee your church will grow. Um, that's what we know is pragmatism, right? Um, assuming that we can follow certain methodologies and always get certain results and then judging um, the methodology uh, by the results. MacArthur in Ashamed of the Gospel really countered that very well by showing that our calling as Christians is is not to gauge uh, the, the means by the end, um, but instead to just follow scripture and to do what God has told us to do in all things, including in the life of the church, through preaching, mm-hmm. through prayer, through other elements that uh, we can't take out of our services no matter what. So I think mm-hmm. that remains, it's got a 10th or 20th anniversary edition or something, still very much worth reading. And I think that's such an important message because as we're going to be getting into in this episode, as your family endured the loss of your son, and of course I had walked this through with my sister, it was really important to my sister at my nephew's funeral that that the gospel was preached. And that was her only request. And, you know, I don't fault the pastors. I know that there's a lot going on, but the particular pastor that got up to preach the gospel, he, d- he didn't do it. And it was, it was disheartening because it was like this kind of like, well, Jesus wants to be your friend and he loves you and you can talk to him. But there really wasn't, you know, turn, repent and believe, which was, you know, Jesus' message. And I think that does reveal a bit in our church culture of people almost being ashamed to give that message when really in grief, that is the freeing message to give. And uh, so that's a good reminder of that. Um, what would be the third? You mentioned Jerry Bridges. I know it's tough to pick just three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I had to pick one Jerry Bridges book, I would probably make it The Discipline of Grace, which is mm. just an important book that talks about the gospel and the importance of familiarizing ourselves with the gospel, the importance of living the Christian life through the gospel. And so it almost sounds cliche in parts of the church today to say that the gospel isn't just the entrance to the Christian life, but it really is the Christian life. We never outgrow the gospel. Um, yeah, that sounds a little cliche, but Bridges was really one of the first who really introduced that idea. And he talks there about the importance of beginning every day by rehearsing the gospel, praying the gospel, mm. and just continually grounding ourselves in that because our temptation is always to drift from the gospel, either toward pragmatism or toward legalism or something mm. other than the joy, the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's so, yeah. so good and so clear on that. that that's great. I'm going to pick that one up. That sounds really great. Um, okay, so there's four that you would remove from every church bookstore. bookstore. And, you know, some of these, as we mentioned before, these are older, so it's not like they're having this the, the massive impact they had when they had it. But I still want to talk about these books because they did have such a massive impact on the church. And with each one, I'd love to talk about why you think they hit a nerve in the church 
And I mean, you know, of course, this first one, which is Jesus Calling, is one that continues to have impact. You see it's uh, the subsequent books in that series in Costco and in Sam's Club. And I'm thinking, okay, wow, what is going on with this? And I never personally read all, all the way through Jesus Calling, but I've read excerpts. And without having this real scholarly, analytical response, I can say it's not the same Jesus that I'm reading about in the Gospels. It's a very more—it right. seems right. like it's more of a New Age Jesus. Talk about Jesus calling, and, uh, you know, maybe your your general review is why you would have churches remove that, and then, let, and then maybe we can move into why you think it had such an impact on the church and continues to, sadly. Yeah, and let me— uh, people may not be familiar with Christian publishing, but the average Christian book sells probably eight to 10,000 copies or something. When we're talking about Jesus calling some of these other books, we're talking about books that have sold in the tens of millions, mm. in the millions or tens of millions. So just exponentially greater than the average Christian book. And so um, even when they're 20 years old, they're still selling that sort of long tail sales um they're still selling way more than the average book. And so even though they're older, they're still very prominent. And most of them generated, um, they were sort of the first, the trailblazers that generated all these other books that were imitators of them. So when we talk about Jesus Calling, we're talking about a book where um, the author, Sarah Young, speaks in the voice of Jesus and she's maybe be, become a little vague on this. She claims to be a Reformed Presbyterian, and yet also claims that Jesus essentially gives her messages, and she's then relaying those messages to her her readers. I, I think she's gotten a little vague on that in time. There is, in the initial version of the book, there is an introduction that was subsequently removed, but she made it pretty clear that there are listeners um, in the church, people who listen, they hear the voice of God and they relay messages. And so her book is written first person in the voice of Jesus. And um, she then, yeah, essentially relays these messages. And as you read them, they sound very, they may sound good, but they also don't sound like the Jesus of the Bible. It's a very different voice. It sounds to me suspiciously like the voice of a uh, 21st century American middle-aged woman. Um <laughs> Imagine and, that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, imagine that. But it, it, I mean, if you read it in that light, you can see, yeah, this sounds more mm. like the author than Jesus Christ. Mm. And I've, you know, one of the concerns I've had about Jesus Calling is often I've, I've heard of people or even interacted with people who, instead of reading the Bible for their daily devotions or their daily quiet time, whatever you want to call it, they're reading Jesus Calling. And that, that to me, is a very dangerous way to go about getting to know Jesus, because we need to get to know Jesus from the scriptures. We need to read the Gospels. In fact, I've shared this story many times on the podcast, but I had to read a very bad, no good progressive Christian book one time that I just really didn't want to read. And so because I just particularly didn't want to read this one, I asked a good friend of mine to read it with me so that we could discern through it together. It was for research. And so we were out walking one day, and the book was about Jesus, it had a lot to say about Jesus. And my friend noted when we were walking, she said, you know, it's so bizarre because I'm reading this progressive book, but I'm also in my daily Bible reading, I'm in the Gospels. And this is just two different people. This is not the same person. And so I think it's so important that Christians, as we come to get to know who Jesus is, we have to be informed by his revealed word. And, and that's how we know what his voice sounds like. But why do you think 
that hit so big in the church. I mean, I know you're not a sociologist, but you surely have some kind of inkling as to why this resonated so deeply with so many people, like you said, in the tens of millions. Yeah. Yeah. And spawned a whole franchise. I mean, she's written many books Mm -hmm. and there's Jesus Calling for Kids and Jesus Calling during everything. It's a huge, huge industry. I think she tapped into it in her introduction or if it's in the subsequent ones, but she said, essentially, I love the Bible. And I love praying and I love all these means of grace that God has given to us, but I still wanted more. And so she wanted more communication, more direct communication from Jesus. And so what I think she did was either imagined or fabricated it. Um, But what she says then is she longed for more and God gave her this more. Um, Which, of course, brings us back to the sufficiency of Scripture. Will we believe that the Bible really is what God has given us and that it's sufficient, that it has all the answers we need, it has all the comfort we need, it has all the truth we need? And will we then be content with this? Of course, there's a longing for more. We were made for unmediated face-to-face walking and talking relationship with God, and we will have it. But as sinful beings on this side of heaven, this is what God has given us. And the question is, will we rejoice in that and be content with that, the word he's given? Well, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Tim Challies as much as I am. I want to take a moment and let you know a couple of things, the first of which is one of our sponsors, Carly Jean Los Angeles, which is a Los Angeles-based women's clothing company founded by Carly Jean Brannon. She's a mom of four. She's a Christian. I love the clothes. In fact, my husband, I'm always telling my husband, I like products that solve problems. And Carly Jean Los Angeles solves a lot of problems for me. First of all, it's clothes made for women who are in a phase of life where you don't have time to go to the mall and try on a bunch of things only to come home disappointed. I love that, and I don't know if they've done this intentionally, but all of the clothes sort of go together. So they're made very simple and basic and timeless, but so, so, so cute. So you can almost randomly pick out any pair of pants and put it with any shirt and with any sweater or coat that they sell, and it's going to go together really nicely. And so that's what I love so much is the versatility of all the pieces. This shirt that I'm wearing today is from their Basics line, which, by the way, is all made in America. I love that. And I also love that Carly Jean does not give money to companies that are going to funnel their charity money out to woke companies, pro-abortion companies, pro-gender queer ideology companies. Carly Jean comes alongside pro-life pregnancy resource centers. I love that. So I know that I'm getting high quality clothes, clothes that are stupid cute, and they're made well and the money that I'm giving toward Carly Jean Los Angeles for the clothes a portion of that is going out to help pregnancy resource centers. Love it. Go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. You can use my code ALISA to get 20% off your first order. They have just restocked some really cute fall pieces. So check out their sweaters and jeans. They just put new ones on the website. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use the code ALISA for 20% off your first order. And I, I've often thought, you know, since my faith crisis and the rebuilding of my theology and how even how I've, I've approached the Bible a little bit differently, because I kind of grew up in more of a charismatic atmosphere. I've shared that openly. And I didn't really know 
about hermeneutics or systematic theology. And I realized even as an adult looking back on scripture that there were whole sections of the Old Testament that I would allegorize not realizing it. And I wasn't denying that they actually happened, but I didn't really care that that really happened. I would just, you know, David goes out to battle and I would just apply that to some spiritual battle I was having in my own life. Now, I'm thankful that I knew the word and I had read the word and I knew what it said. Uh, But I, I kind of relate with the aspect of not wanting it to just be this dry study. But now when I come to it from this perspective with the tools to properly discern and properly read the Bible in its context, I find that I could spend three lifetimes studying the Bible and not get to the bottom of that well. And I think that's what I would hope most Christians could really grasp onto is that When you study the Bible, when you're reading it in context and you're using good tools of hermeneutics of interpreting it properly, it's never going to come up dry for you. It's never going to be, oh, I have nothing more. I need more. I mean, like you said, we do have that longing because that's what we were created for. But we have so much that God has given us. And uh, yeah, I think things like Jesus Calling can be something that could really distract you from actually learning about who God really is. And so if anybody's listening or watching that wants to get a great review of Jesus Calling, go to, what's your website, Tim, so people can go? Chalice.com. And so all of these, I believe that we're going to talk through, you've done reviews on, and people can find and help with discerning those as well. So um, what's number two? What would you get rid of out of every church bookstore? I guess the second one would be The Shack, which, again, is going back in time a little bit, but to a book that was just phenomenally important in its time and because of that still is. And so The Shack is a novel, not a um, not a nonfiction book. So if Sarah Young's is a devotional. This is now Mm -hmm. a novel we've moved on to. And, uh, yeah, it's a novel that makes um, it, it tells a story about a man who engages with the trinity has this experience with the triune god and it's a very flippant experience with god very um casual and he really um changes who god is versus the god we see in the scripture and if rc sproul was uh writing the holiness of god it's almost like the shack is the unholiness of Mm. god Mm. making him far too human and far too familiar and i'm sure as you would know it also did a lot to advance the cause of progressive Christianity in its own way. Yeah. In fact, William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, you know, at least up until as far as I was looking at it in recent years, has done conferences with people like Richard Rohr. He has embraced, as you pointed out to me, this was incredibly helpful to me. You pointed out that he's embraced universal reconciliation, which is a type of universalism. In fact, you wrote an article. uh, It was a follow-up to the shack, which I think, okay, so Tim, I think the reason so many Christians were confused about the shack is because it was a novel. They weren't thinking through the theological implications. There, you know, you would hear people say, well, it's just a story. It's just a story. And then, of course, the whole thing was resurrected when the movie came out a few years ago and it got another round of life to it. But I, I truly believe with all my heart that the shack is what set up millions of Christians to be able to embrace a progressive Christian view of the atonement, which would be Whatever it lands on in the positive sense, it's a rejection of penal substitutionary atonement. And you do see hints of that in the shack. But even I was second guessing myself when I finally read it. It's like, well, they didn't outright say it. So maybe that's not what they mean. 
But then William Paul Young comes out with the book, Lies We Believe About God, and you wrote a tremendous review on that. And in in Lies We Believe About God, this is where William Paul Young fleshed out the theology that undergirded the shack. And I mean, obviously attacking things like God's sovereignty, him being in control, um, you needing to get saved. And this is where he says in his book, and you point this out in your review, he says, are you suggesting that everyone is saved, that you believe in universal salvation? And he says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so I think we see that theology fleshed out, but the shack continues to be a favorite, I think, of many people who don't realize that there's these theological underpinnings of um, just denigrating the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God. And yet it's so emotionally compelling because, of course, it's about a man who loses his child, and um, a lot of people who have had difficult emotional things, I think, related to it and responded to it. I'd be curious to know, now that you've walked that path, does do you see the shack any differently, or does it? do you hate it even more? <laughs> How yeah. do you approach it? Yeah, I hate it all the more because mm. what we needed in our loss was truths about God. We didn't yes. need to reinvent God. And again, in, in our in our great tragedies, what we're always tempted to do is begin with ourselves or begin with our tragedies and reinterpret God, which is exactly what the shack does. It starts with what's most true is my loss, is my sorrow. And th if that's the, the core of all truth, then I can reinterpret God according to it. Where the opposite should be true, we should be beginning with here's who God is. Here's who God reveals himself to be. Now I'm going to interpret my experience or my circumstances in light of those truths. I have no right to, to change who God is. I only have the right to, mm. to view my experiences in the light of his character. And uh, that's certainly what, what we did. And we just found such joy and such comfort in doing mm. that. God God became more real to us, if you will. We we love him more now on the other side of our tragedy than yeah. than we did before. But that's not the least bit because um, we we changed who God is. Rather, we just got to know him better and to love yeah. him more. Well, I'm jumping in just one more time to let you know about another one of our sponsors, which is Good Ranchers. We love Good Ranchers. It's American meat delivered right to your door. We're talking high-quality ground beef, Angus-quality ground beef, better than organic chicken. I love that they now have wild-caught seafood and heritage-breed pork. It is so, so good. We absolutely love it. Your box will come to you shipped with dry ice, so it stays nice and cold and frozen. And you can even put some in your fridge to thaw out to cook and you can put the rest in your freezer for another time. It's so convenient. And again, I love that Good Ranchers is a Christian-owned company. They have great values. They're not giving money to woke companies. But this is the time to subscribe to Good Ranchers if you haven't already, because on October 6th, two big deals are ending. So until October 6th, if you subscribe to Good Ranchers, you're going to get a price guarantee that's good for two years. So if you subscribe to Good Ranchers before October 6th, your price will not change for two years for your subscription. And you're also going to get two years worth of free ground beef. And that also ends on October 6th. So now is the time. If you've been thinking about subscribing to Good Ranchers, now is the time to give it a try. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ALISA for $25 off your first box. Again, that's GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ALISA for $25 off your first box. Oh, that's beautiful. And 
even walking with my sister through through that, of course, it's nothing like if you, you know, I'm the aunt, I'm not the actual mom. So I, I know that what she walked through was much darker and more difficult than what I did. But I remember just clinging to the sovereignty of God. That was my only comfort in those times. Um, so to, to think that, you know, it's a lie to say that God is in control is an affront to his holiness, an affront to his sovereignty. And it's ultimately, I think, not comforting when we're going through great times of loss. Um, Let me, if I can just yeah. throw one thing out here, I think D.A. Carson, I've heard him talk before about the importance of trajectories to, mm. to see where a person was and now where he is in his book. And you can sort of set a trajectory to where they will be. And I think when we read the shack, we saw, okay, well, here's the theology he held to before. Here's the theology he's espousing in the shack. Let's just kind of draw that line on into the future a little bit. And of course, it was going to lead to universalism and the denial of penal substitutionary atonement and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we have to be careful because people can reverse their trajectory or we could misread it. But I do think it's important to to do that. We saw that with the emerging church, you know, as Mm -hmm. they started to tinker with a certain number of doctrines, we began to see, okay, well, that's where this is going to lead. And obviously, you've seen the same as well in your studies of progressive Christianity. It, It progresses, all right. It progresses further and further from the truth. Yeah, very much. Why do you think the church was so vulnerable to the shack, which sold, I I think, uh, I mean, it sold at least 20 million copies, probably more since I last checked. Why do you think it resonated so much? Why it caught on? I mean, it caught on with people that I would have expected to know better. Yeah. Well, make God very safe, right? God is terrifying in his holiness. And that's what R.C. Sproul tells so well in the holiness of God. Here's the God who, if you reach out and touch the ark, he can justly strike you dead and God has done no wrong. That's who God is in the scripture. God who would um, willingly punish his own son for our sins. Um, that's, that's the kind of God we can't easily wrap our minds around. But the God of the shack was a God who's very easy to understand and very mm. safe. And really, if, if Sarah Young's Jesus looks a lot like her, Paul William Young's God looks a lot like him, I'm sure, his desire for a God. And that's what we're always doing is recreating God in our own image. We need to be so, so careful of that. But I think that's exactly what the shack offered is a God who is safe, not scary, not intimidating, not holy. And I wonder, too, if it revealed, maybe this all kind of comes together because you mentioned with uh, maybe it was when you were talking about ashamed of the gospel and sort of that seeker-sensitive movement and like, here's how you make, uh, get more people to come to your church, you know, maybe back off the repentance stuff or whatever it might be. But I wonder, too, if it revealed a lack of good teaching in churches that people could so easily fall into something like this. I remember, gosh, so many years ago, long before my faith crisis, reading uh, Blue Like Jazz. Did, do you remember Blue Like Jazz? Mm, yeah. And I, I didn't like it, but I couldn't articulate why I didn't like it. Um, and I felt very frustrated. This was, you know, I, I loved Jesus. I had read the word, but I couldn't pinpoint why I didn't like it. And all my friends loved it. All the people around me were like, oh, this book, this book. And I think that, you know, I might have been in that place where you're reading a book and you're like, something's not sitting right, but I don't have the tools. I'm not sure I know how to articulate what's wrong with it. And I wonder if a lot of Christians might have been in that spot too, because I did talk with some people who had read it, who they really 
believed that it helped them and ministered to them and then realized later, oh, wait, maybe that was bad. And in, in some cases, they said, well, I had red flags, but I just kind of put those aside because so much of it was good and it ministered to me. It made me feel better. And so I think that's a huge warning to the church, too, that uh, we need to make sure that we that in our pulpits, pastors are teaching through the Bible and teaching the truth about God's nature and character and what what we are as humans and that we're fallen and that we need to be redeemed. We need to be reconciled to a holy God. And I think maybe the shack unearthed the vulnerability of the church at large that maybe we weren't teaching that enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be careful that we're not saying if you read the shack, you're a bad person or not oh, a Christian, sure, right. or even if you enjoyed it and gained some something from it. Because I do know people who read it and they just didn't get it on that level. Um, you know, it didn't undermine their faith. I, I don't think that changes the nature of it. It's a terrible, right. say it's a terrible book that teaches evil, but God is so gracious and so kind to his people. And, um, you know, he can, he, he can allow those things and even use those things, but no, certainly it was, it was a book that, um, took advantage of Christians naivete, Christians lack of good teaching, which I think follows behind one of the other books we're going to talk about, which is one that really um, convinced the church not to teach sound mm. doctrine, but to teach only what people wanted to hear. Well, let's move to that one. What's the third one you'd get rid of in every Christian bookstore? Yeah. So I think the Purpose Driven Church um, was really the the guidebook for the church at a time when um, it was a time in the church where, yeah, they were there was this idea that the, the society was changing and it was time to change the faith to keep up with the times. And so we didn't want to be your grandfather's church was what we heard. You know, this isn't your grandparents' church anymore. We're, we're creating a new kind of church for a new generation. And uh, so the purpose driven church was really a guide to pragmatism, to mm. introducing a pragmatic form of the Christian faith, a faith that says, what results do we want? And we're then going to engineer that result. We'll change the church in order to get that result. The result they wanted was people essentially making some sort of commitment to the local church, um, uh, assuming that was the same as a true commitment to Christ. And so let's grow the church by getting tons of people in. And uh, that's really easy to do, we found. It's very easy to get people in the front door of a church, especially if we go door to door asking them, what would it take to get you into the front doors of our church? Mm. Um, it's easy to get them in, um, but the only way you can do that is to take certain things away from the church. Because what unbelievers or token believers don't want in the church, they don't want the prayer. They don't want the scripture reading. They don't want big emphasis on sacraments or ordinances. They don't want preaching judgment. They don't want to talk about hell. So really what you have to do is gut the Christian faith and um, just keep the parts of it that don't offend unbelievers. Mm. And that, of course, is is an absurd thing to do. And I think we found now, um, 20, 30 years on, that it really, ironically, pragmatism itself didn't work. It got the front door open, people came in, but they didn't stick around. They didn't mm. show that true life change because it, so many were never truly saved. Mm. I, I never read that book, but in the book, did they, I mean, it seems so bizarre to to tell churches to do this. How was it worded? I'm sure it wasn't worded like, hey, stop. I mean, maybe it was. Did they say stop preaching repentance and judgment? And or was was there a plan to maybe bring that in on the small group level? What was the what was the basic plan of that? Yeah, I, I think the plan was just to be very programmatic again, to literally 
ask people, what would it take to get you in church, to canvas the neighborhoods, find out what would bring people in, and then just do those things and eliminate the rest. And so what that looked like eventually was, well, breaking up the church demographically. So we're going to have a church for only this kind of person. And almost inevitably, those were middle class people. That's where the money was. That's where, Mm. um, you know, that's where you could draw in that crowd. And then what would it take to get you here? What needs could the church meet? And so that's where you had these sermons about how to grow a stronger marriage or how to Mm. how to be good parents, those sorts of things, which are all very important. But that's not the same as preaching the gospel. And so you got people in to address their needs. But what you didn't do was really preach. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent of your sins. You need to change. And so you ended up having churches full of essentially unbelievers, people who mm. are committed to the church, but not committed to Christ. Mm. So so would you say that would be the main fallout of that message is that we have churches filled with non-Christians that might think they're Christians, which is scary. Yes. Yes, that was exactly it. And um, because they had never really been confronted with the gospel, because the gospel draws some and repels others. Yes. The the message of church growth was essentially only do the things that draw and eliminate the things that repel. Mm. Um, maybe eventually get to some of those things, but it was really asking for a low level commitment to the church. And um, yeah, our task as Christians was not to offend, not to do anything that would drive people off. And look, we don't want to be deliberately offensive. But at the end of the day, we have a message that does offend because it describes each of us as a a wretched sinner who is uh, justly brought down upon ourselves the wrath of God. And uh, I mean, it's offensive also in even penal substitutionary atonement that one person could be punished on behalf of others and and so on. So we can't negate the offense of the Christian faith, the offense of the gospel, or if we do, we've completely undermined and destroyed the, the heart of the faith. What was it Paul said? He said, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, and to those who are being saved, it smells like life, I'm paraphrasing, but to those who are perishing, it smells like death. And I think that's yeah. that's a picture I like to leave people with, because whatever you're saying, I mean, you don't want people to be offended because you're being a jerk, you know, or you're being... Uh, unkind or something. But at some point, I've told people, people ask me all the time, how can I communicate truth without offending people? And ultimately, my answer is you can't. You can say something in the most loving way possible, the most winsome way possible. And you're still, there's still going to be people who hate you because it's not you they hate, it's God. And it's kind of like Paul said, our job is to spread the fragrance. And it's going to, ha- you're going to have a smell if you're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And to some people, you're going to smell really rotten. But to those who God is drawing and calling, you're, they're going to be like, oh, this smells good. This is truth. I want this. And so we just have to be willing to, I guess, be brave enough to not take that middle ground and just, well, whatever you want to hear, we're going to give you. Because I think we've seen a lot of fallout in our modern church culture because of that type of thing. So number four, what, what's the fourth one that you would remove from every Christian bookstore? Yeah, I guess it would be the the heaven tourism genre in general. The whole genre. Just get rid of all of them. The whole genre. (laughs) Right. Which began, I guess, with 90 Minutes in Heaven. I believe that was the first, at least in our modern times. Um, But once that author had his experience, Don Piper, not John Piper, he remembered that he had been to heaven and told his story. Lots of other people remembered Mm. that they too had been to heaven and told their stories. And so soon there was this whole group of books 
that we're all telling roughly the same experience of going to heaven. Um, but the heaven they described and the God they described was very, very different amongst all of them. And uh, I don't think too many people saw the, the contradiction there that, uh, I think yeah. there's one heaven, one experience of believers going to heaven, not, not many different forms of it. Yeah. I remember having a dream when I was a little girl. I was I was scared of heaven. I was scared of eternity. I had this existential angst about all that stuff. And I had a dream one night and it was like heaven was this ice cream parlor. <laughs> and I had this just this sense of peace and Jesus was serving ice cream. Yeah, maybe I should write a book about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, it is easy to just maybe have a dream and say, oh, you know, I went to heaven or or even make it up. I think there have been some of those that have even been debunked as being completely fabricated, not even from an experience that the author thought was real or something like that. So I'd be with you on that. We have the information we need about heaven, don't we? We we know what we need to know from God's word. And yet we're yeah. still, it's like Jesus calling. We want more. Right, right. And I, I think what you said there is important. We can't assume that everybody's experience is real we can't even assume that some people aren't just making this whole thing up to earn a buck. And that was exactly yeah. the case. At least one of them, the family stepped out away from the dad and said, this whole thing was fabricated. In fact, the child, the boy who went to heaven came out and said it never happened. So we need to believe that sometimes people will do evil things and say evil things just because Christians are naive enough to buy it. The Christian publishing industry can be naive enough or money grasping enough to publish it. So we need to be very careful. If, if, if all that we're saying about the Christian faith is true, if God is real, Satan is real, then of course there's an absolute war going on in this world. And there will be people who lie, make things up, fabricate things for the sake of personal enrichment, or even for the sake of leading true Christians astray. We're in a war yeah. here. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's pivot here. Um, tell us about Nick and about um, the unexpected call that you, as a parent, never thought you would get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pivoting indeed. So um, Nick was our oldest child. Um, he was a student at Boyce College and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, so doing his Bible college and seminary concurrently. Um, doing well in life, newly engaged and um, yeah, just really showing great promise when just very suddenly one day the Lord chose to take him. He was out playing a game with some friends and he just collapsed and uh, nobody was able to revive him. And uh, that was it. So we were at home in Canada. He was down in Louisville. This was the early days of the pandemic. Borders still largely closed and travel really diminished and all of that. And uh, we got the call that he was gone. And so that entered us then into this this uh, time of great grief, great loss. We, um, you know, no inkling this could happen, no no suggestions that he was ill or anything. It was literally just an instantaneous mm. death. And so therefore an instantaneous um, time for us to enter into this, this period of mourning yeah. and grief. Just catapulted into it. And um, you've written yeah. about this in your book, Seasons of Sorrow, which is so beautiful. And I I can imagine that this has ministered to many parents who have found themselves in a similar position as you. Um, the book is laid out over the course of a year, fall, winter, spring, and summer. There are shorter chapters that are very reflective of what you were thinking. And I, I want to ask you about a couple of themes in the book because they're really quite beautiful. Um, of course, there's this heaviness and this darkness of 
this news and this new normal that you're being catapulted into. But you recall, you, you talk, this theme is so good, the death of death accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. Talk about that. Well, the great hope we have as Christians is that death, as we know it now, is a temporary state and that death is at its best. We see it as the gateway between ourselves and eternity, ourselves and the presence of God. And so um, that has been accomplished. If that's true, that has been accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. He is the one who conquered death. And that's because he took our sin upon himself. He he suffered the penalty for our sin. And uh, we know that that penalty is death. We only die because sin reigns in this world. And so if if what we say about Christ is true, if he really has conquered death, and we know that he has because he was resurrected, then we know that there is a resurrection awaiting us as well, that we will pass through death, go to be with the presence of go to be in the presence of the Lord. Yeah. And it's interesting, many people I've talked to who have experienced the death of a loved one, and myself included, it's that resurrection piece. It's knowing that, and that's real, and that's why I love the way you say it, the death of death, accomplished by the death of Jesus. Because ultimately, when we're in Christ, when we know the truth about reality, death doesn't get the last word. Death is not the final thing. And that is the great hope that the Christian has. Um, in the in the summer portion of your, your book, you talk about the ministry of sorrow. Talk about the ministry of sorrow. You say death is the great interrupter. It's the great interrupter because far more often than not, it strikes when it's least expected. When it when death comes, and especially when it comes to the young, it interrupts plans, dreams, projects, and goals. And uh, you you talk about the ministry of sorrow. Expand on that a little bit, if you would. Sure. Um, first, let me say the death of death and the death of Christ was a Puritan work from years ago. That was the mm. title of it. So okay. lest anybody accuse me of plagiarism, the, okay, uh, the phrase itself was borrowed from our spiritual forebears. Uh, the ministry of sorrow, I, I came in time to understand that, to really just, I had to grapple with God's sovereignty. If God was really sovereign over this, was he really sovereign over this? And I, I came to to reaffirm that, no, God could have prevented this, or God was behind this, or this was God's will, different ways of saying the same thing, which is God oversees history, including he's the one who gives life, and he's the one ultimately who chooses when life will end. If all of that was the case, then God had some sort of purpose behind Nick's death. Uh, Of course, Nick's death was primarily some interaction or something between God and Nick, right? He was his own person. So why God took Nick I don't, I don't know God's reasoning behind it, um, but I can start to see some of his purpose and I can accept it as God's will and, and begin to embrace it by um, turning it outward into love for God and service for other people. And so I think what God does is he equips his people to love and serve others through the sorrows that we've endured. Mm. And so as as one who suffered a loss, I now see God as placing a responsibility upon me to to love and care for others, to minister to others. And to be clear, that's not a formal ministry. You know, you start collecting charitable donations and call it something you know, ministries, grief ministries. No, it's just my way of engaging with the Christians God brings into my orbit, whether through the local church or through friendships or even through some sort of public ministry that he grants to some. Um, 
yeah, use turning my experience outward so I can use it to love and encourage others. And I think all of us can think of people that that's happened to Elizabeth Elliot, you know, how yeah. she turned her sorrow into ministry to yeah. others. How many of us have been blessed by her or Amy Carmichael or Johnny Erickson Tata, all these people mm -hmm. who have accepted difficult providences as being God's will for their life and have then used that, turned it outward to others. In those dark times um, of grief, which comes in waves and everybody responds differently to grief, what brought you the most comfort? The character of God. I mean, really, in our sorrow, as I was saying earlier, we had to we had to look at God. We just had to stare more and more at God as he reveals himself in his word. And the temptation, of course, was to reframe God, to say, well, Surely a good God could not have wanted something like this to happen. Surely it must have snuck up on God or surely it must have somehow caught him by surprise, you know, become open theists or something in our in our sorrows or, you know, other ways of just reframing God. But no, we looked at God as the God who is sovereign and the God who is good. And then we allowed his goodness and his sovereignty to interpret our circumstances. Mm. And uh, it was God was just so kind to us and so good to us in our sorrow to just keep revealing himself through his word, revealing himself through his spirit, revealing himself through the words other people would bring us, other Christians come and ministering to us with the word of God. And it just allowed us to see God more and more as who he truly is. And that then allowed us to, to rejoice in his goodness and rejoice in his sovereignty and accept this as somehow good a manifestation of his his goodness it reminds me in chapter nine it's called my manifesto and you say by faith i will accept nick's death as god's will by faith accept that god's will is always good by faith i will be at peace with providence and by faith at peace with its every decree by faith i will praise god in the taking as i did in the giving and by faith receive from his hand this sorrow as i have so many joys I will grieve but not grumble, mourn but not murmur, weep but not whine. I, I think every Christian should memorize that. And when there are times of hardship or, in, you know, whatever it might be, that is such an amazing and beautiful, breathtaking response that I have highlighted in my version here that I, I want to memorize that as something to, to claim for myself and to say when I'm going through difficult times. I'm sure that you've received a lot of responses from parents who have been through similar experiences. Because, um, you know, I, this book, I'm sure, was a labor of love. It's it's not something you write so that you'll become a millionaire, you know, author or something like that. What has the response been? The, the response has been very encouraging. Um, I think not just for people who have lost a child, but just people who have endured grief, which is all of us, right? There's mm -hmm. no path through this life that doesn't lead through some of those valleys, the valley of the shadow of death. So all of us have to grapple with these big realities. And in the end, um, yeah, I think we're left just with, um, we're left with God's providence. And will we really accept that God truly does oversee all that happens in this world? And then God's character, will we truly see him as good and in every action being an expression of his goodness. And, you know, ultimately, I think what we need to do is begin at the cross. It's always the yeah. best place to go. We go to the cross and we see the perfect son of God being crucified for the sins of, of messy people like you and me, broken, sinful, rebellious people. 
like you and me. And we, we understand this is the most horrific act that's ever happened in all of human history. Um, human beings crucifying God, the God, son of God. Yeah. And yet we see there God bringing the greatest good through that greatest evil. There, there's been no, nothing more glorifies God than the redemption of his people through the death and resurrection of his son. And so we, we begin there and we say, well, if God can use even something that evil to bring about good, then surely through the circumstances, the hardships of our lives, he can bring about good. And so when we start at the cross, it really reframes our thinking. It really helps us to understand, no, God does glorify himself. God does specialize in using bad things to bring about great good, to use the consequences of, of life in a sinful world to bring glory to his name. If he can do it through the death of his son, he can do it even through the difficult circumstances of our lives. Mm, that's beautiful. And as an apologetics-themed channel, one of the objections to Christianity that we often see from atheists, but also from progressive Christians and people in the deconstruction hashtag and in that sort of movement or explosion or whatever you want to call it, is this idea that if God was all-powerful, he would stop something like this happening. And so it, either that or he's not all-good, because if he was good, he would stop it too. So therefore, God is not all-powerful, not all-good. Um, how might you answer something like that, having walked through, really, I think, probably one of the most difficult things a person can walk through? If God, why suffering? Why evil? Yeah, it's the age-old question, and I don't—there's lots of responses to it and very good responses. I think to, to receive those responses, you have to have your heart in a certain mm -hmm. posture because people want to fight over it. Um, but really, before you can accept any of the responses we give, you have to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Mm -hmm. You have to acknowledge your own sinfulness and acknowledge God's holiness and then repent and believe. Um, so, you know, there are good responses, but I really think what I want to push people to is, well, what about you? Why don't you, um, yeah, where are you at with the Lord? Mm -hmm. And really don't, you, you can, you can come up with all sorts of reasons not to embrace the the gospel and maybe that's part of your reasons but if i give you a response do you really want to hear it do you really want to have your 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 view changed on this or are we just bickering i, I wouldn't mm -hmm. ever want to miss an opportunity to to challenge people with the the gospel that's very I know that's my, not quite answering no the, the I, that, that's a very insightful just, response yeah. though because it's kind of similar to my friend frank turek when he's doing he does these they can be really hostile, these Q&A sessions at college campuses. And if he's got a particularly hostile questioner, he'll say, okay, before, before we answer whatever question it is you've just asked, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And he said, yeah. very often, they'll say no. And then he says, well, then you don't have an intellectual problem. You have a heart problem. This is, this is a, heart, a heart problem, and it's a gospel issue, essentially. And I think that's kind of getting to the same thing from a different angle. But no, that's very good. Well, as we close out here— I saw some Mormons—sorry, I just want to say, I saw some yeah. Mormons across the way earlier on. And I was hoping they would come knock on my door, too, because same thing. We can interact with Mormons or cultists or progressives, all that, on their terms. But And that's—you know, there's times to have those discussions and debate, but never, ever lose the gospel. The gospel yes. has the power to change hearts. And until you believe the gospel, you never assent to any of the other things, the problem of evil. You never see it 
in a Christian way, unless first your heart is transformed. Mm. So you see God as being who he is. You see yourself as who you are. Okay. All right. Well, as we close out here, um, and by the way, I need to be a better Christian because things I've never said is, I hope Mormons knock on my door. I need to get better in that area. <laughs> Lord, help me. Um, but as we close out here, um, what would you like to leave everybody with? And also, maybe at the end of that, direct everybody to where they can find you online and connect with you. And of course, you can pick up Seasons of Sorrow. I'm guessing anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, Kindle, all the things. I think I would want people to consider whether they are prepared for a time of suffering, a time of sorrow. Mm. Um, it's it's going to come upon all of us. It might not be the loss of a child, but it'll be the loss of a spouse, the loss of a friend, the loss of a parent. Again, there's no path through this life that doesn't involve suffering. And as I spoke to my family in the aftermath, I think we universally just express thanks to God that he had prepared us um, not through not through circumstances in our life. He had prepared us through primarily through his word. He had prepared us by um, in advance. We knew who God was. We had looked carefully at God in the word. We had studied theology. We had studied sound doctrine. So we knew who God was in the, in the midst of the storm isn't when you want to be, you know, the midst of your loss isn't when you want to be saying, well, is God really good or is God mm. really sovereign? Asking those questions. We need to ask those ones in advance. So when suffering comes, we already know mm. who God is. And so, you know, we talk a lot about deconstruction. Let's construct a view of mm. God that's based on the word. And let's have that as the non-negotiable. And then when the storms come, then when the suffering comes, we know who our God is. And we can just stay firmly fixed on him and... um Trust me, the, the the waves will, the winds will blow, the waves will break, but you won't, you won't lose your grip on God because He won't lose His grip on you. You'll know who He is, and um, yeah, that, that was just such a blessing for us. Mm. Oh, praise God! Well, I'd like to thank my guest Tim Challies. Go to challies.com to learn all about his book reviews and pick up Seasons of Sorrow wherever books are sold. Also, want to mention Southern Evangelical Seminary, who is one of the sponsors of this podcast. Of course, I'm a student there. I love my classes. Go to ses.edu/alisa. You can download a free ebook there. And don't forget that there is Alisa Childers Music now on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. You can go to alisachilders.com/music to pre-order the new five-song EP and. I I can't wait to share these songs with you. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.